Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Grant Lickman about his book, Hashtag EdJourney, A Roadmap to the Future of Education. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Trevor. I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I have a little bit of a different background than uh, other folks who spent a lot of time in schools. Uh, I grew up in uh, Northern California, went to public schools. I got ended up getting a bachelor's and master's from Stanford in marine geology, and I worked uh, in the international oil and gas business in the for-profit world for a number of years. But at a certain point, uh, I recognized that really my, my long-term uh, interests and passions for many years had been had revolved around the potential transformational nature of education. I think education is one of those things that truly has the capacity to transform lives. And so I left the for-profit world, and I worked for about uh, 15, 14 or 15 years at a large independent school in San Diego, uh, wore a lot of different hats, uh, uh, did some teaching, but mostly I was a senior administrator in charge of sort of the operations and finances of the school. Uh, but it allowed me to really be immersed in the uh, in an educational setting for for well over a decade. Uh, after that, uh, I, I think the subject we're going to talk about. Uh, I, I left that school, and since for the last uh, four years have really been able to work with schools and districts around the country, somewhat uh, internationally as well, uh, helping them, what I think I best describe as helping schools build a comfort and capacity for change during a time when the world is evolving very rapidly around us. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about um, how your experiences, either as a student or as an adult in the for-profit world or working with independent schools and now other schools, what's really shaped your views on education? Well, there have been so, so, many, so many times. I think going back even to my own school years, uh, I, uh, I, I, when I stopped to think about it, I realized uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, all of my heroes growing up were teachers and coaches, obviously other than members of my own family. Um, but the people who I really believed uh, uh, were making a real impact on my life, they, they all were teachers and coaches. Uh, when I first decided to leave the for-profit world, I sat down one day and I started sketching out uh, what, what have I learned since I'd left school? What have I learned in, well, maybe, maybe in, in, in school and then since then in the, in the corporate world, uh, about what makes people successful and happy? What helps them to overcome, uh, obstacles and take advantage of opportunities and lives? And that actually turned into a seminar that I wanted to teach 
uh, to high school students. And so I was able to do that when I went to this independent school. I, I asked to not be paid and the school not, uh, school not give the students credit for that seminar. That turned into my first book, The Falconer, which uh, does re- relay a lot of the sort of, you know, f- sort of fundamental uh, uh, moments of understanding that I've had about how education can give students a better insight into the uh, strategies and techniques that they use, not, not just in school, but really more in life about how to overcome obstacles and take advantage of opportunities. I was fortunate to work with uh, some educators uh, during the time I was in the for-profit world to think about uh, what students needed uh, in terms of being able to find problems and understand the world systematically around them. And uh, back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, schools just weren't too interested in, the, in all of that. Uh, in the last decade or so, schools and educators have realized that the world really is changing in dramatic ways. And these are the, the tools uh, sometimes referred to as 21st century skills or deeper learning skills. These are the, the skills and characteristics that our students do need to be successful. And so I think uh, uh, a lot of what I've been uh, thinking about, writing about, teaching about that 20 or 30 years ago is, has maybe finally come around to, to be something that most educators believe is are fundamentally important to our education system now. You travel the entire country and you visit schools in all different contexts. Um, where, where did you get this idea? And then uh, how, how did the process of writing the book work for you? Well, the idea came to me uh, one day on an airplane. Uh, it was about, it was probably in about uh, 2011. Uh, I had been at a conference with a number of, edu- of other educators, and we sort of were standing around asking ourselves, uh, how do we know that here we are in the, after, in the end of the first decade of the 21st century, uh, and most schools haven't changed very much? How do we know that? In the, by the end of the second decade and the third decade, we're not still going to be standing around saying, hmm, you know, schools need to do better about addressing the needs of a 21st century education. And so on the plane home, I was thinking about that, and, and I, I felt like I'd been at the school that I'd been at for a long time, and at first sort of the idea was to take a sabbatical. Uh, but I realized that I had uh, potential access to the one thing that virtually every educator, and I've, it's funny, Trevor, I've, I've asked this, or given this sort of rhetorical prompt to probably 10,000 educators in the last four years, I say, what's the one thing that every educator wishes they had more of? I've never heard a single word come out of anybody's mouth other than the word time, mm-hmm. uh, which is remarkable. And I, and I was at a point in my life where I had that time. Our, our, our children are, are grown and doing uh, great things on their own, and so I kind of begged my wife uh, forgiveness. I had this idea that I wanted to go out and actually ask educators what are you actually doing in order to change how education is meeting the needs of our children? I'd heard the term innovation used for probably a decade uh, about, uh, you know, we need to be more innovative in education, but nobody had ever really defined what innovation meant for me. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to take a trip, uh, go out into the field and, and, and gather uh, data. And so I sort of begged my wife's forgiveness uh, packed up my Prius and drove around the country for 89 days, visited 64 schools in that time, uh, and essentially asking the question, what does innovation mean to you? Uh, show me the program or the classroom or the project or the group of individuals that are that you feel are leading the way into how you, you, you think your school thinks we should be uh, uh, teaching uh, students better in the future and what learning looks like in the future. Uh, and it just collected that and was able to, you know, talk to a lot of different people in a lot of different school settings and <clears throat> gather all that together. And that, that became the book, uh, Hashtag, Hashtag Ed Journey. 
Can you share some examples uh, uh, that will illustrate the variety of different schools you visited, as well as the range of people whom you had conversations with? You know, I visited a wide variety of schools on that trip, and then subsequently I've been able to even flesh that out a lot more in, in, my, in my current work. But even on that first trip, I visited everything from uh, a school in the inner city of Cleveland. I would uh, I think it would not be unfair to say a school that was right at the crossroads of the some of the most you know toughest gang-ridden portions of the urban core of Cleveland uh, with some of the most intransigent uh social and economic problems that I'd ever seen in the community. And I visited uh, uh, a couple of the most high-priced, well-endowed private schools on the East Coast. Uh, I talked to first-grade students. I talked to principals, uh, faculty members, uh, parents, uh, high school students, uh, and subsequently, you know, superintendents. Uh, so really right across the spectrum of the fabric of, uh, and certainly it doesn't mean to imply that I've, I've been at every school and seen every situation, but I think I've, I've seen a pretty good spread. That's one thing I'm really interested in, in hearing you talk a little bit more about is uh, what, what differences really exist among all of these schools and what differences are, are overstated. Um, to what extent can, can we talk about school in a very general way? So were, were there certain aspects of schools that consistently felt the same despite their, their different contexts? And were there yeah. other aspects of school that, that did consistently feel different and were that to, seeming to you to be shaped by their unique missions or geographies, budgets, et cetera? So, so let's, let's, let's talk about the differences first. Uh, obviously, we, we all know there are tremendous inequities and differences in education that reflect the inequities in our social and economic setting in this country. Uh, And those are obvious in every way to school, the physical setting, the social setting, the uh, training and and experience of teachers, the problems that they deal with, uh, uh, the safety and security of, of students, the social well-being, uh, enormous differences at these different schools. Again, I visited, you know, some very, very underserved communities, and I visited uh, private schools with with multi-hundred million dollar endowments and all the resources that they need. Uh, and so, the differences I think are the easiest to understand, and I think those are the ones that most people have traditionally sort of talked about and said, well, you know, you can't really compare these schools in terms of the learning experience because of the differences. I found plenty of room to disagree with that generalization. Uh, When it comes to the understanding of stakeholders in these various communities about what constitutes great learning uh, from their own experience as uh, students and their current experience as parents or educators, I found a great deal more congruity and consonance about the characteristics and the conditions that create circumstances of great learning than uh, disagreement and dissonance. Uh, Great learning looks very much the same in a school that is, that struggles with poverty. Uh, and a school that has all the resources in the world. And that's what I think a lot of the book was about, was trying to, was trying to synthesize and summarize uh, not only what does great learning look like 
in theory, but then as uh, these educators and these school communities were saying, how do we need to evolve what we've been doing in the past in order to meet the challenges of the future, uh, I found a great deal of congruity amongst uh, what I was seeing, what people were showing me, what they were saying, this is the direction we want to go, re regardless of uh, the social and economic circumstances. I'm wondering uh, what, what sorts of practices you saw in, in different kinds of school. You thought, wow, you know, you don't have to have hundreds of millions of dollars in order to, to execute some of these practices. Yeah, you know what? I, uh, the best way I think I can I can articulate that in a sort of summary level is is that I think schools operate on three different levels. The top, the highest level, the sort of thirty thousand foot level is: Do we have a clear vision and understanding of what we're trying to achieve on behalf of our students? And that sounds like it should be easy to answer, but it's not easy when schools come at it from very different places and they're serving very different communities. Uh, and, and so that's sort of that, the, 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 that, that top level. The next level down is what I call the systems level, the 10,000-foot level. Uh, and if, if a school is trying to change, if a school is trying to evolve from the sort of traditional time and seat, uh, sit and do your worksheet, take your exam kind of industrial age model, to what we now, I think, generally refer to as a deeper learning model, uh, th there have to be systems in place that allow them to be successful uh, and to sustain that over time, regardless of when principals come and go or faculty come and go or budgets change. Uh, there have to be systems in place that allow that to be sustainable over time. And then the ground floor level is, what, you know, what are you doing in the classroom every day to uh, align your, your, your systems with those lofty objectives about what you're trying to achieve for the students. Uh, and what I found, the schools, the, the, the schools that were most successful at being able to evolve, to truly be innovative, uh, to change away from the traditional model of, of, uh, of, of very teacher-centric, uh, exam-centric learning, were schools that had strength or were developing strength at all, at all three of these levels. Um, they had a clear understanding of where they wanted to go. Uh, they, it wasn't happening just uh, by happenstance uh, that we hoped that this was going to take place. There was some good evolution of the systematic processes. And then perhaps most importantly to your question, uh, there really is an evolving agreement amongst educators around the country uh, around this term, a deeper learning model. That, that term deeper learning is an outgrowth of the deeper learning network and deeper learning supported by the Hewlett Foundation. Uh, and, if, and if readers want to, or if listeners want to go and Google deeper learning, they can find all sorts of resources that help define a teaching and learning environment that is much more centered on the individual differentiated needs of the student, the ability of the student to make choices and take ownership of that learning, uh, to grow as individuals, to make choices based on interests and passions, uh, to work collaboratively and collectively to solve, to find and solve problems. Uh, and those, those elements of that, of that deeper learning pedagogy was what I saw, uh, in every one of these schools that I visited. What's interesting, of course, is, and what was one of the big takeaways, uh, the book, 
was that none of that is new. Virtually all of that, all of that deeper learning model of learning uh, uh, that that was 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 on exhibit at all these schools I visited came straight out of, or would have come straight out of John Dewey and the other giants of the progressive era of education more than a hundred years ago. So it's interesting to hear you kind of articulate what deeper learning is. I think all of our listeners are say, yeah, that's that's what school should look like, right? And then for you to say that really we've we've known how to do these things for a long time, it, it makes me wonder uh, what were some of the common obstacles that that you found in, in visiting schools. So the two biggest obstacles I think in any in changing any organization from one model to another, uh, but have specific relevance in schools are fear and inertia. Uh, fear, uh, fear does not allow us to take risks, and it's impossible for any individual or any organization to innovate, to change, without taking risks. Uh, schools have had a particularly uh, negative or difficult relationship with the concept of fear uh, at all levels. Uh, students fear getting an F. Teachers uh, fear either uh, not uh, preparing their student for the next grade level or getting uh, negative feedback from the principal. The principal has a fear that the superintendent is going to transfer them to a different school if she doesn't like what is going on at the school. Uh, The superintendent is afraid of public backlash. So uh, there's been a great deal of fear embedded in education, fear of taking risks, fear of trying something new. Uh, without the guarantee, absolute guarantees that it's going to work, uh, so that was one of the. That's one of the, the big obstacles. Uh, another one uh, is is inertia. Uh, the fact of the matter is is that our current design of schools, the way schools are currently designed, is w- was really fundamentally planned about 150 years ago in order to meet the needs of 19th century developing. Demo- uh, 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 industrial and social democracies, uh, and it has been incredibly successful at meeting those design parameters over most of the last 150 years. Uh, and so you have a set of uh, institutions that have been very successful, and uh, people say, well, we need to change, and the question is, well, you know, why should we change? And the more successful the school has been, the more inertia they have uh, to not wanting to change. There's also a great deal of inertia around that has been built up by competing forces uh, that have buffeted uh, education, both public and private education, for uh, for decades. Uh, competing social, political, uh, economic, and interest-based forces that have combined to keep uh, that moment of inertia very powerful uh, in schools. And so, those are the two biggest obstacles. Uh, that I found, I'd say there's one. There are a couple of others that came out uh, that uh, that I that I talk about a lot in the book. Uh, one has to do with uh, the silos in which uh, uh, educators operate. Uh, we know that in, in successful innovation in organization requires some degree of network connectivity, and uh, schools are very operate within very rigid silos of of discipline and grade level. Uh, and uh, subject matter uh, and that sort of thing, and so that prohibits uh, innovation. We have a we have an obstacle to innovation in the college admissions process, which uh, up to now has not uh, valued a deeper learning outcomes for students. But we're starting to see some of that change. And there are obstacles. Uh, there's a big obstacle in the way that teachers valued themselves and and saw their value as the 
purveyor of or the preacher of uh, subject material within a, uh, a classroom constrained by physical and time constraints. Uh, and so once, once uh, schools and individuals and organizations were allowed to or were able to start overcoming those obstacles, and cutting, sort of cutting some of those anchors and cutting some of those chains uh, that have constrained them, that's where we're able to see schools really operate in, in very different ways. Uh, like high-tech, high, where, where you used to work, uh, they, they just operate in very different ways, and people go, yeah, that's, that's what we think schools should look like. And I appreciated that, that conversation in the book around risk aversion and the difference between something being hard and actually it making us uncomfortable, maybe making us fearful. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see risk aversion in schools is having different causes or different consequences when compared to other institutions. Well, I, I think there are, there are both differences and similarities, uh, and I'm not an expert on hospitals or the church or the justice system and those sorts of things. They have their own uh, fears and inertia that, that make it difficult for them to change. But as I said, there are some specific uh, issues in schools. And I would say at the end of the day, it comes back to this. Look, uh, the adults in the system feel very strongly that they have a powerful and important uh, responsibility uh, with respect to the children. And uh, if you think about a teacher, a teacher gets a student for maybe uh, one, 45 minutes a day for one year, uh, and their, their attitude is, I can't mess this up. Uh, and the, uh, the, the principal and superintendents you know, have that same feeling of responsibility, but it's scaled up. Uh, there's a huge downside to taking a risk with, with students under our care. Uh, if you mess something up and they don't learn what they need to learn, uh, unfortunately, that is antithetical to the way the world works when, it's, when there's rapid change taking place. We, we, no, we no longer have the luxury of being able to wait uh, 20 years for the results of a longitudinal study to somehow quasi-prove to us that a new methodology might be better for the students. We have to try uh, pilots. We have to take some of these risks. And frankly, we want our students to take risks as well. We, we, want, to, we want them to get outside of their comfort zone uh, in order to take risks academically and in their learning. And if they don't see their role models doing that similarly, uh, they're going to be very reluctant to take that, those risks themselves. And, and so how did you see schools and, and school communities as facilitating that, that sort of risk-taking for, for teachers and school systems? Well, a lot of it is uh, getting together as a, com- a, a community of stakeholders and this is kind of what I this is what I've learned, and now what I do a lot with schools as I work with individual schools and districts is getting the community of stakeholders together and prompting them and provoking them to ask questions in a different way. Uh, so rather than asking, "Is this literacy?" A program better than that literacy program, or should we change a little bit how the workbook that we're going to use in mathematics? I get school communities, again, diverse communities of stakeholders, parents, teachers, administrators, students, uh, even uh, community business leaders together to ask questions like, what does great learning actually look like to you? What does great teaching look like? What are the hopes and dreams and aspirations we have for our children? Uh, we ask questions like that, and what we find is there is an amazing amount of congruity and agreement, uh, even in communities with very different settings, albeit I will 
issue, big caveat. Uh, I, I don't believe that this holds for communities in extreme poverty. Um, but but uh, communities of, uh, with some uh, latitude in their social and economic uh, circumstances, I think come up with a lot of the same uh, 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 definitions of things like great learning and great teaching. And then the question just becomes, okay, uh, how, how, what are the differences between what we're doing today and what you say we should be doing in the future? And are you willing to actually uh, take the risk to make those changes? It sounds like in your conversations with the school stakeholders, you're encouraging them to uh, to ask more fundamental questions. Uh, I, I never prohibit somebody from saying, you know, I think back to my own. If somebody wanted to say, I think back to my own learning, and the thing that really made the difference for me was the quality of the math textbook. I'd be more than happy to hear that from them. The fact of the matter is I've asked these questions to thousands and thousands of people, and I've never once heard that as an answer. And, yeah, so that's not where people go. That's about, not what they remember. Yeah, as so we think about what's most important, uh, very agnostically and very openly, with, no, with very few preconditions, the fact of the matter is very few people say, uh, for example, I really feel that what was impactful to me in my learning was uh, the way that I learned math or, or how I learned diagram sentences or, or you know, the you know, word algebra or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But it's not to say those are not important, but in terms of the driving conditions of, of a school setting, uh, those should not be the driving conditions. Now you're, you're kind of making me think that uh, what you're trying to do is encourage these school stakeholders to, to, re- to rethink, to redesign school around the things that we value anyways. Um, the, the bits and pieces that we did get um, when we were in school 10, 20, 30 years ago, and uh, making more of school like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I could actually uh, uh, direct your listeners to, uh, after I wrote Hashtag Ed Journey, I'm obviously continued to, to do writing. There's an article on my uh, website. It's uh, grantlickman.com, and under the resources page, there's an article that I wrote for uh, a, a new project that was started at the Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, last fall, the fall of uh, 2015. Uh, the, the project was called Transforming Teaching. And in that article, I essentially made the argument that I, I compared education, the system of education, to a computer system. And I made the argument that we have dedicated a, a tremendous amount of time, treasure, and thought to both the hardware and software of the system of education uh, for, for decades. The hardware of the system would be uh, things like the physical campuses and uh, technology wiring, uh, actually the people in the system, the teachers, developing teachers, uh, that sort of thing. The software in the system is curriculum and actual software and uh, the pedagogy and the processes of, of learning. Uh, but, here, but here's the problem. Uh, in 150 years, we have not directed our attention at the operating system of education. We've not directed our thinking at the fundamental guiding structures of education, things like the daily calendar, the annual schedule, the the, 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 the separation of students and teachers according to subject and age and how we assess learning. All of these are fundamental parts of the operating system, and the vast majority of those have been essentially untouched in almost 150 years while the conditions for which 
we are uh, uh, educating our students have changed dramatically. And that's really where we are in education today. We have to reimagine the operating system. And that's something I really appreciate about the work that you do with schools is you get those conversations started because I think that they're unlikely to start on their own. Just to take the the length of the school day or the school calendar as examples, you know, as an individual teacher, I didn't really think that that was something that I could change. And so I never brought that up to anybody. And I can imagine that many principals or even superintendents think, well, that's just the way that it is. And there's not really any chance of those things changing unless people realize that everyone's thinking the same thing. And so uh, bringing people together and posing some really hard questions and encouraging them to, to, to rethink things from the ground up is, is what you need in order to, to make big changes. Yeah, the good news, though, is the questions aren't really all that hard. If you think about the questions I posed a minute ago, things like, what does great learning look like to you? Typically, we give groups of people a stack of Post-it notes in three minutes to answer that question, and we get hundreds of responses. So in three minutes, we've essentially got a snapshot of what the stakeholders in that community believe great learning looks like based on their own experiences. And then we can just uh, group and map those. So it's not... Those are not hard questions to answer. The difficulty is, and you mentioned a few minutes ago, when I talked about hashtag Ed Journey, I talked about the difference between uh, change being hard and change being uncomfortable. Um, it's sort of organizational uh, change law or theory that all change is very hard. Uh, I believe that relative to some of the really hard things in life, and I talk about some of those in the book. We all have our own knowledge of what really hard things are in life. Changing schools is not hard. It's uncomfortable. It involves getting people outside of their comfort zone to try new things. And that is, is, is complex, uh, but having that conversation about the difference between hard and uncomfortable goes a long way to helping the community to understand, you know what, uh, Relative to some of the things that we and our students go through every day, this isn't hard. We just have to be willing to embrace some discomfort. And so uh, for the schools and the stakeholders who were willing to be uncomfortable um, and were willing to do this work, uh, what did they end up changing in their schools? So what were some common characteristics of the schools that were innovating? Well, uh, you know, there are just they're, they're so many. Uh, the, the, I, I, would, I, would, I would say... The, the, the easiest way to think of them are to, to think about those uh, those major elements of the institutional structure. So how do we use time every day? Traditional school uh, learning is essentially driven by the use of time. We break the school day up into five or six or seven or eight different short periods, and uh, that drives the learning conditions where I've yet to meet an educator who said, if I could start a school from scratch, I would start a school with that traditional kind of uh, schedule. Uh, the fact that students are learning in a four-walled classroom on a physical campus when, in fact, the opportunities for learning in the world around us are just dramatic and, and profound. Uh, the experiences that we learn in the world around us. So this hard boundary between, quote-unquote, school and the rest of the world uh, changing. How we assess and evaluate our systems, we, we know, our students. We know that uh, just giving students a letter grade and, giving the, and grading on the curve on bubble exams uh, doesn't tell us anything about student growth. It tells us a little about where they 
uh, what they're learning in terms of long-term uh, retention. And so uh, these are some of the, the, the big nodes uh, that schools tackle. They say we have to tackle how we use time, how we assess our kids, the physical spaces, the professional learning pathways for our students. Uh, I quote, uh, I'll quote my good friend Bo Adams uh, at the at Mount Vernon Institute for Innovation down in Atlanta when he says, you know, look, fundamentally what we have to do is we, we have to change schools from being organizations of teaching to organizations of learning. Uh, and that has been the start of a conversation about what's the difference between a teaching organization and a learning organization. And that gets schools thinking about where they need to change. And so uh, from your work and your observations of schools who are, are willing to get into it, um, is, is there advice that, that you would offer them? Yeah, I mean, that's hard to summarize in a conversation like this, Trevor. I mean, that's <laughs> there's 90,000 uh, uh, words in, in hashtag Ed Journey about that. And I don't think the, the problem is you can't do one thing. Uh, you, you can't say, uh, and, and this is, is the problem, because in the past schools have said, okay, this year we're going to take a look at our math program. Or this year, let's take a look at uh, uh, the, the schedule. Maybe three or four or five years from now we might, we might make a change in that. That rate of change is just utterly out of phase with the way the world is changing around us. We have to look at this as a system. Um, uh, if people go to my resources page, uh, they'll also see a couple of other articles where uh, I've talked about you know, how schools can approach this. There is what I call a, a stairway of innovation uh, that there has, to be, uh, there has to be leadership. There has to be consistent and strong leadership. Uh, the, the, the community of stakeholders has to evolve uh, collectively a vision of, of, of what they think great learning looks like and what they want to achieve as an organization. Uh, they have to allocate resources to making these changes. You can't just ask teachers to snap their fingers and, and, and change what they've been doing maybe for five or 10 or, or, or 30 years. We have to give them time and resources and, and the skill set uh, to make that change. Uh, we have to introduce uh, different skill sets like the skill the skills of distributed leadership in the organization because we, we can't have an organization where it's always the top down uh, make, uh, making the decision, mommy and daddy, principal or superintendent, telling us what to do. Uh, we have to com- communicate effectively with our stakeholders, both inside and outside the school. So, yeah, there's kind of a, what I call a stairway of innovation that probably has eight or nine large elements to it. The good news is that a lot of schools already do some of those things very well. So what they need to do is they need to look at uh, at that at those elements, look at that stairway, and, and see honestly uh, where they need to get better. And so, uh, thinking about all the schools that you visited, uh, what do you think are some of the biggest uh, common challenges that, that you see for them going forward? Well, the, the, big, the big common challenge is overcoming fear and inertia. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, that that is the big one. Um, you know, uh, and again, I'll go back. We have uh, probably 500 years of knowledge and research uh, about how organizations have successfully adapted to change, really, ever since the Renaissance. And the two, the two most important, consistent uh, indicators of organizations that have changed successfully to meet those external challenges are one. Uh, the uh, ability and the willingness to take risk, and to the degree to which the individuals in the organization are connected uh, with both 
their peers, but also with people out at the margins of their experiences, which is where innovation lies. And mm-hmm. schools in the past, traditional schools, have done a remarkably bad job at both of those. Uh, so institutionally, those are the two big obstacles we need to overcome. So if readers were to just have one takeaway from your book, what would you hope that it would be? You know, I guess it would be that uh, change is not hard. It's not hard. It's uncomfortable. Uh, and we ask of our students uh, to work at the edges of their comfort zone. We ask them to push outside of their comfort zone in their learning because we know that that's how they learn. We have to model that for our students. We have to model a willingness to embrace discomfort, to try new things, to to match what we say we want great learning to look like with what we're actually doing every day. Grant, I've taken up a lot of your time today, so I just want to ask you a couple more questions. First, uh, what are three other books that you might recommend to listeners who have enjoyed uh, our conversation today and uh, enjoy your book? Wow, there's so many. Uh, uh, A couple that come to mind. um, There's a book called The End of Average by Todd Rose at Harvard, which I think is a a real uh, must-read. There is... There's a, a book called The Rise of the DEO, the Design Executive Officer. Uh, and again, these are kind of at the boundary. Yeah, I, I like to push people beyond just thinking just as an educator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great book. And then one that I think is absolutely a must-read is Creativity, Inc. by Edward Catmull, who was one of the two founders of Pixar. And so it's the story of Pixar and why Pixar is one of the most successful organizations in the world today. Uh, and there are so many uh, great overlaps into how schools should operate. Uh, I completely agree with you. In fact, I, I'm really happy to hear you recommend books that may not seem like they relate to schools and teaching at first, um, because some of the things that have most influenced my teaching practice weren't written for an audience of teachers. They were written for people thinking about organizations generally. Um, so thank yeah, you for those ab- recommendations. Absolutely, and there, there are probably another half dozen I could cite uh, you know, for people to read after they read Hashtag Ed Journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, finally, I-, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and how our listeners can follow your work? Well, I continue to be able to be fortunate to work uh, with schools and districts around the country. I'm a lucky guy who doesn't, you know, I'm not tied to one school. So I continue to work with uh, schools, again, from uh, very underserved public districts to some of the most well-resourced private schools uh, in, in the country uh, on helping them build that comfort capacity for change. I try to, and I think I do a pretty good job of keeping up with a lot of that work uh, via my blog, uh, which is, uh, again, at uh, uh, grantlipman.com. Uh, and I've just uh, finished a manuscript, which uh, will be my next book, Hope it will be published uh, within the next year. Uh, And the thesis of that book, I think, really is going to be uh, provocative to a lot of your listeners. The thesis is that, uh, as we've talked about, uh, K-12 education has been stuck for many, many years, if not decades. And it's been stuck because the social, economic, and interest forces that have buffeted education, uh, have pushed it 
this way and push it back the other way, and we need to unstick education. Well, the fact of the matter is, simple physics tells us that we don't move any that we we, we don't move. Uh, I call it the big rock uh, uh, that that has a tremendous amount of inertia without the the forces uh, to overcome that inertia being greater than the force of inertia itself. And so I started thinking about what are some levers that we could apply to education that very specifically do not require uh, empowerment or uh, permission from the forces that have created inertia in the first place. Mm. And so uh, those, those forces of inertia are, you know, uh, everything from the political left and right to state legislatures to departments of education, bureaucracies, to uh, self-interested uh, adult groups, to the publishing oligarchy, and so I think uh, I came up with some ideas. I've interviewed about 60 or 70 people from around the country, digested a lot of what I've learned in the last four or five years, and that's the subject of the new book. The working title is Moving the Rock, uh, and, I, and, and for each of those uh, uh, ideas about how we can really press hard on a lever, I issue some pretty audacious challenges, but the audacity is only in that we're challenging ourselves. Uh, there are no rules or laws that prevent us from changing education. It is only our own willingness to take on our own fears and to overcome that inertia uh, that is keeping education stuck. And so that's the subject of this next book, which I hope will be very provocative and will be accessible and readable for an audience beyond just educators, but really the entire community of stakeholders who care about the future of education. Grant, it sounds like an excellent follow-up to hashtag EdJourney. Um, so I'd love to have you back on the show to, to talk about it when the book's released. I'd be happy to. And the great part about it is I didn't have to drive around the country for 89 days in my Prius to, to get the data for this one. <laughs> That's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I want to thank you uh, for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate it, uh, Trevor, and uh, uh, look forward to speaking with you again in the future. All right. Take care.